Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. So today we're going to be talking wait, about. Wait, 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 wait. I have a question for you. Oh. Yeah. I have okay. a question for you today. All right. Have you ever been in a long distance relationship? Oh, goodness. Vicky, it is too early. No. Well, it's always never. too early to talk about this. I, I have, actually. I was in three, three. long term, long distance relationships. Long term. <laughs> More than at least at least a couple years each. No shame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're not that old. That's like a significant chunk of your dating life. It. I. You don't have to tell me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, College into grad school, and I ended up moving a significant distance away from college into grad school, and that. I would say in all in all of these, like distance wasn't the factor, frankly, but it didn't didn't help. No. Yeah, college into grad school, grad school, like every six months, honestly, because of we were both scientists and yeah. had field seasons where we had to travel, and so we'd basically spend six months together and six months apart and six months together and six months apart. Because uh, unfortunately, that's like what happens in academia sometimes, and that's yeah. more of an indictment of the system. If I'm being honest, blame it on the system. I'm gonna blame it on the system. And then, and then, yeah, when I first actually moved to D.C., between D.C. and Pennsylvania. And so, yeah, I get, I get, I'm not like, some people make it work. But for me, again, and it was never the distance, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't right. And, and now, like, I'm, I'm getting married, actually, like, in a month. And so, I'm pretty happy the way things turned out with how things are going. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, my other relationships. Yeah, so like not not super great on on my end. What about you? I've had a couple of long distance relationships, and actually like a couple of long distance periods with my husband. Oh really? Now, yeah, and it all worked out. We always tried to think of it as like military families are separated for long periods of time, and they make it work. We can make it work too. So my husband and I met at science camp. Oh, that's so fitting we for were, what we're doing yeah, right now. Yeah, when we were in high school. So then we were like, and we obviously were like, oh, we're going to get get married. We've known each other for three days and we're going to get married. <laughs> so then then we were immediately long distance because we're from different states. And that did not work. But then we mm. went to the same college. Intentionally? Well, the science camp was like at the college. Okay, and I'm gotcha. lazy. So I was like, that'll work. So I went to college <laughs> there. It was a really good college. Hobart and William Smith. There you go. But I think my husband looked, researched more and ended up there, like legitimately. But so then we did, you know, dated on and off, did summers, long distance. Then he moved to Vermont to do law school. So we were long distance. Then I moved up after him. Then we did, after we got married, actually, did a year apart. He wanted, yeah, he really, he found his dream job and he really wanted it. And I said, you could do that, but I don't want to live where it is. So he moved away for a year. Yeah. yeah, and then moved back. Like we ended up in DC as a result of that. So yeah, we all. made it work. Look we at that. Got a lot of like airline miles. Hey, you know what? If nothing else, you got a lot of airline miles. Yeah, we're just really <laughs> independent people, so it worked for us. But good. Well, I'm I'm happy that this could end on a on a high note, Vicky. Yeah. <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun.
Okay, so I don't. We don't need to belabor anymore of my unsuccessful experience with long distance and Vicky. You're successful. Good mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, experience with it, but how how all this fits into what we're actually talking about today? Uh, we're going to figure this all out and better to explain where we're actually going with this. I want to bring in producer Katrina Jackson. Hi, Katrina. Hi, Shane. Why are we why are we doing this? Why did we subject ourselves to talking about long distance <laughs> relationships? Well, I thought this would be a good setup to talk about the long distance relationship that we all have with that giant ball of plasma 90 million miles away. So you're talking about the sun? That's a good setup. Are you setting us up with the sun? <laughs> well, I mean, you've already been pretty much dating the sun your whole life, right? <laughs> Wait, okay, maybe that analogy is getting a little weird. We've been in a relationship with the sun. That's okay. But just like like a physical one. No. Wait, no, that's 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 weird too. Well, a relationship based on physics. A physics soul relationship? Oh, stop. <laughs> Never. <laughs> oh, it brings me so much joy. Okay. So back on track. We are talking about stuff like what? Like how hot it is or the sun making like plants grow like what are we what are we talking about with this relationship yeah so this is more the relationship between the sun and earth and space weather that sort of relationship Mm. i see okay okay so you leave it to katrina to bring things back to actually being relevant back to science Yeah. And so for this episode, I talked with Thomas Moore, who has had an extensive career in heliophysics for more than four decades. And heliophysics, as the name implies, is physics of the sun. But the solar atmosphere actually extends throughout the whole solar system. So it's also the study of how the gases and plasmas from the sun interact with each of the planets, including Earth. So I asked Tom about his career in heliophysics and what he would like to see happen in this field in the future. Great. Let's get into it. Yeah, so I'm Thomas Earl Moore. I'm a heliophysicist, or and also maybe with a subspecialty in uh, geospace physics, which makes me a geophysicist, which allows me to be a member of the American Geophysical Union. <laughs> so. Throughout your career, you've been mostly interested in studying our own solar system compared to other solar systems. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I, when I when I headed for graduate school, I <clears throat> had already, well, I had thought about, did I want to go into astrophysics or something different? And I, I was specifically looking to study this kind of subject inside the solar system, and mainly because uh, we're here, you know, people in life is only known so far to be inside our solar system and really only on our planet. So I had this underlying interest in life and evolution, I guess, not so much in biology, although you can't really separate them. Anyhow, that was the discriminator for me. Uh, Heliophysics, everything inside the solar system, and then there's all the stuff outside the solar system, which (laughs) gotten to be more and more interesting over time. But I hear you got to do sounding rocket experiments in grad school to study the auroras. So what was that like? Did you get to go to any interesting places to do that? Yeah, you know, they're they're, they're mostly Arctic places, but, uh, and those, they're very interesting. We, my uh, graduate project was done out of Alaska, 
Chattanooga, which is near um, Fairbanks. So you're way up in the Arctic Circle, and the aurora comes out there almost every night, or at least every few nights. And so you can do a two-week or three-week expedition or field expedition up there. I think the best aurora I ever saw, though, was in Tanglewood, the Tanglewood uh, Music Theater in, I think it's Lee, Massachusetts, where Aurora came out during a Rachmaninoff performance. <laughs> it was like it was choreographed. It was just unbelievably gorgeous Aurora in Western Massachusetts. Um, nice and dark out there with a symphony playing. Fantastic. I assume that wasn't part of any of your rockets experiments. That was just, you were at a concert? <laughs> no, that was just uh, that was just good karma. I did, I did see Aurora in Huntsville, Alabama once. Really? A barn-burning red Aurora. Yeah, it's very unusual. And the biggest biggest space storms that occur can, can send the Aurora down that far and even to Florida very rarely. So um, a buddy of mine rousted me out to see this. So question for the two of you, have have y'all ever seen an aurora like the, I think it's the, the Arctic aurora? I, I haven't, unfortunately. I, I would love to, but haven't been fortunate enough to. I haven't either. I have actually. Back when I was in grad school in North Dakota, I was able to see a little bit of the aurora there and up into the border of Canada. And I've also, in Arctic Sweden, I've seen the aurora there. But I've never seen like a really big, colorful aurora with all the different colors, the greens and the reds and the purple. I've only seen a little bit of the green. So it would be cool to see like a really big, good one. Mm. Yeah, I can understand wanting to, like, I just want to see something full stop. And I assume, I mean, I've, I think the farthest north I've ever been is in parts of Iceland. I, I figure I'm, we're too far south here, obviously, right, to see anything like that. Well, I guess apparently if there's a really big storm, you might be able to see it as far south as here. And and Tom mentioned seeing that one all the way down in Alabama, but you've got to have a really big storm for it to be visible way down there. Yeah, I don't know. what What's the return on investment or, or the what makes it worth it to have a storm that big enough that like I think I'd be worried about other things happening other than just like seeing an aurora. <laughs> yeah. And Tom was actually telling me about a really big solar storm that happened in 1972. And I think you talked about that storm on this podcast a few years ago, right? About how it caused sea mines near North Vietnam to explode. Yeah, yeah. That was such a wild story. That was in kind of the, the fledgling days of Third Pod. But go back and listen to it, folks. We'll we'll put a link to it in the in the notes. But the the cliff notes is there was a solar storm that ended up causing naval mines, like think aquatic mines that sink things like battleship, like you sunk my battleship to explode. Or at least that that's the running hypothesis. Yeah, so and a big solar storm like that can cause all these kinds of weird effects on Earth, but generally our atmosphere and our magnetic field protects us from the worst of it. But if you're out in space, and remember what was happening in the space program in the early 1970s. The Apollo missions. Right. Apollo 16 was in April of 1972. Apollo 17 was in December. And this solar storm happened in August. So luckily, astronauts were not out there during the storm. Well, then that's great. But I mean, what if they have been? What would have happened if the astronauts were out there on one of the Apollo missions during that storm? Yeah, they, they, they would have been they would have been sickened by uh, radiation from the energetic particle fluxes from the part of the storm 
is tremendous fluxes of energetic particles that basically like sitting near a radioactive source, getting too close to a radioactive source, except you're bathed in them. And you'd be out there relatively unshielded by anything that the space vehicles aren't a lot of, a lot of shielding and you're exposed for hours and you could very easily be so sickened that they might never have made it, been able to manage to make the trip back. Oh, geez. Yeah, I was going to ask, if, is that something you would have noticed, they would have noticed right away, or is it something that they wouldn't have noticed until later? But it sounds like pretty quickly. It comes on pretty quickly if it's that intense, within hours, you know, or a few hours. I would say maybe even quicker than that, depending on the exposure level. But anyway, there. I mean, it was a potentially lethal dose that, was, that would have been experienced by uh, astronauts had they been there at the wrong time. I imagine our ability to forecast space weather has gotten better over the years. Would they have been able to know that storm was coming back in 1972? No, no. They're, the sun is pretty unpredictable. I mean, it's you kind of can follow what it's doing when it starts <laughs> having a solar flare or solar mass ejection. The result is sometimes expressed as a billion tons of matter going a million miles an hour away from the sun and Sometimes that's toward the earth, kind of a luck of the roulette wheel where the earth happens to be at the moment that that occurs or a few days after that occurs. It takes a, a few days for it to reach the earth. Would we have any better, better forecasting for the Artemis missions coming up for anyone going to the moon in the next few years? If one of these storms came... Yes, and there'll be warnings, and I think they'll probably go with with mechanisms to shield themselves if, you know, they'll, they'll set up ways of being shielded and scramming into uh, some kind of a shielded structure if the storm is found to be approaching. You know, I, actually, there's, I don't know if you watch the, uh, the streaming show um, For All Mankind, they did a kind of a, a nice, in some ways, nice sort of dramatization of what would happen on the moon if there were a base up there, a colony of astronauts, and uh, one of the storms occurred. And of course, people were out and about and needed to scram into caves or back to the, the home base structure in order to get out of the storm. But there were other reasons why certain people couldn't quite do that. And other people got stuck on the surface of the moon and other people tried to save them. And it, it was really quite a nice dramatization of, of the kind of things that can happen. But but there, anybody that goes there in the future, I'm sure, will be prepared to to try and duck such radiation levels and stay safe. And they'll have good support. There, there'll be, it'll be known hours in advance that something is coming. I really love this mention of For All Mankind. We are not sponsored by, have any affiliation with the show, uh, but I, I personally really enjoy this show. Have either, have either of you watched it? I haven't. I hadn't watched any of it until I did this interview, and then I was curious about this episode. So I went and watched it. This is the first episode of season two, so I didn't really know who the characters were. But after I watched it, then I went back and started from season one, and now I'm almost finished with season two. Ooh, binge yeah. it. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's super. Like, we're not giving anything away, but it's basically what if the space race never stopped? Essentially, mm-hmm. kind of this alternative history, and it does raise some interesting questions, not just about space per se, but about like what happens if you get stranded somewhere and you can't get back, and and, and things about just like how the political system works. It's it's from a space perspective, and from a I'm a nerd from a nerd perspective. I really I really enjoy it. Well, so speaking of getting stranded in space and also like the politics of that, has anyone seen Lightyear, the new Buzz Lightyear movie? <laughs> That's more my speed. I, I haven't, no. I have seen Lightyear. Yeah. You know what? People, people, I feel like the folks are giving Lightyear a hard time. I, uh-huh. I just really enjoyed it. It's just like a fun romp. And it's yeah. like, it's like a Pixar movie. So tackle some serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like maybe it's, I haven't seen For All Mankind, but maybe it's. Sounds like it's tackling some of the same issues. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought people would be listening to? I listen to a lot of pop culture podcasts as well. Who would have thought that we'd have a mix of pop culture and uh, sciencey stuff on Third Pod? Yeah. Uh, but we are more squarely in the science e realm and storytelling. So I'm going to be the responsible one here and get us back on track by now deferring back to Katrina to actually get us truly <laughs> back on track. <laughs> Yeah, well, so that episode in For All Mankind, it was about the solar storm happening on the moon, and it was an interesting depiction of it, but it can really show why space weather is an important thing to study in heliophysics. We want to be able to understand really well what can happen in these events, and we want to be able to accurately forecast these events. But on the other hand, Tom was telling me that personally he's actually interested in some of the aspects of heliophysics that take place over longer timescales. I've become an advocate in my uh, retirement for worrying about longer term things. There's many, many, many fast timescale processes that we've been studying for some time. And all of them are very interesting and becoming better and better known. But I'm, I'm kind of an advocate that we need to look into the future as far as we can. We're, that's really kind of what distinguishes human beings is having the ability to anticipate, at least speculate, but preferably actually anticipate what kinds of things will happen. Once you understand what's going on, you can anticipate where it's going. And so I'm, I'm an advocate for, uh, well, I'm an advocate for doing as, as much advanced thinking as we can and asking what, what will be the consequences of something like a geomagnetic field reversal. Our magnetic field flips, you know, reduces near zero and then becomes strong in the opposite direction. Every, um, about four or five times per million years. (laughs) So this is a long time scale. The sun itself, of course, has magnetic cycle that's 11 years long that I mentioned earlier. And that's, you know, that's important, but it's, uh, you can actually run a space mission that will last 11 years and witness what goes on over a decade in space. So we've we've learned a heck of a lot about what, what that process is and how it works. Going back to the geomagnetic field reversal, when was the last time that happened? How long does it take for that to happen? What would be some effects of that happening? Yeah, they're, they're, it's fairly random, but the average over eons is about five times per million years, so 200,000 years. But it's been 750,000 years since there was a real good solid reversal. Although about 40,000 years ago, there was almost a reversal where the magnetic field got much weaker and gave some evidence of 
you know, it's kind of hard to envision what this dynamo is that makes the magnetic field. Although there, we study that there are people who are studying that very carefully. It's kind of an irregular, somewhat chaotic process, apparently that is, isn't periodic. You know, it's not nice. And every 11 years, the sun by contrast is pretty regular with its 11 year cycle. Although it does hiccup at times and stop, stop the cycle and then restart it. Well, where am I going here with this? <laughs> the thing with the geomagnetic reversals is that they have, we should be able to understand quite well what would happen to our magnetosphere, what would happen to our interaction with the sun, what the aurora would do during a, during a geomagnetic reversal. And we may have one starting up now, but it will take a couple thousand years to play out. So when you try to propose studying these kinds of things, <laughs> You get a bit of pushback that you know it's hard to hard to envision a nasa mission that would study a, a thousand year long process you, you can study a 10 year long process pretty conveniently but uh, you have to come at it diff from different angles than the standard way of doing business I don't think, I mean, I know I don't, fully understand this geomagnetic reversal thing. So basically the North Pole becomes the South Pole and the South Pole becomes the North Pole, right? Yeah, that's the gist, but I don't think anyone really fully understands it. At least that's the impression I got from my conversation with Tom and the little bit of reading I did. We can tell from rocks when in the past these magnetic field reversals have happened, and the frequency has been super variable. At some points, the geomagnetic field stayed the same for tens of millions of years, and at some points, the field was flipping back and forth over just tens of thousands of years. So we know that much, but as for what causes it, when the next reversal will be, and what exactly the effects will be when that field gets reversed, I don't think anyone really knows. That's a really big mystery to solve yet. Yeah, I mean, I can see why Tom would be interested in these types of longer kind of timescale phenomenon. I mean, it's it, it sounds like there's a lot left to study. But how would you even go about studying that? Have you had any sort of pushback to any of these ideas or wanting to study these longer timescale periods? Yeah, well, I have, um, I have a few proposals <laughs> that never were funded in which I was, I had tried to propose some contributions to that. They were basically found, you know, to be, I don't know, outside the mainstream of uh, concerns in heliophysics or just not possible to address with a 10 year long space mission. We need, we need different ways of coming at that problem than 10 year long space missions, clearly. You know, I ended up, somewhat frustrated by those efforts and maybe this is an expression of that frustration that I think we really do need to worry about that somehow. I guess I'm really encouraged that NASA has funded uh, the study of what the effect of, geom of magnetic fields that are on planet atmospheres, whether they help the solar wind to scour the atmosphere off the planet or protect the atmosphere from that scouring. Really encouraged to see that happening. And so I think that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And what else would you like to see in terms of trying to study these longer timescales? Like you said, a 10-year mission is probably not going to cut it. Are you wanting 
a mission that lasts longer or are there other ways to try to approach the problem? Well, I think one fairly obvious thing is to, to do, th to take the theories that we have that we think are pretty good theories and simulations that we feel are pretty good on timescales that we've worried about so far and test how they test them on longer timescales. I think that's the immediate thing that could be going on is um, the simulation groups could be testing their, their models and ask, testing them in ranges where they don't normally test them. And that will help to make the models stronger, I think, and more accurate. As far as actually observing things, right? The, the, the geomagnetic observations are interesting. Those come from, you know, the upwelling of uh, the crust at, on the ocean floor and the spreading across the ocean floor. And you see a record across the ocean floor of uh, different magnetic orientations for these that correspond to the various reversals of our field. Beautiful result, Geo a geology result, right? Can't really do that with a space mission. But I think we, we need to think up new ways of observing this kind of long-term history, and I'm not sure what they are. You know, I'm just kind of waving the flag that it would be important if anybody could figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, and you talked in your paper about humans wanting something bigger than ourselves to outlive us. What impact on science or on the human story do you hope to leave behind? Well, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with uh, the idea that some of these studies are getting funded now. And I, I contributed to proposing them, and I'm glad to see them getting funded. And I think the younger generation is going to carry those that stuff on. And it's good. very elate. I mean, it's, an, it's an elating thing in relation to see that they're succeeding. question, but I'll, I'll ask you the same question I asked Tom. What impact do you want to leave behind? This podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to be buried with a copy of this podcast. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be a much uh, smaller, very more personal version of, uh, of Carl Sagan at all being on Voyager Way on the Galaxy, except I'll be I don't actually don't know if I don't think I want to be buried. I probably want to be cremated. So we'll just like oh my put God. a put. A, <laughs> I know we're getting into some. We're stuff really here, getting but, deep here. But whatever the form of audio is, like whatever, however you save audio, like hopefully many years from now we'll just like set that beside the urn. Oh, I just had a terrible <laughs> a terrible thought of somebody coming along and like dumping out your ashes, and this like eight track tape falls out. <laughs> <An eight track. laughs> Why is well, it? Well, I mean, track? in the future, that would be the equivalent. Um, I I was I'm not that old, Vicky. Like no, my generation no, no. was probably equivalent CDs. of an eight track. <laughs> all right. Well, that's with with that lovely imagery. That is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Katrina, for bringing us this story, and to Tom for sharing his work with us. This episode was produced by Katrina with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Oh, the ice ASMR? again. ASMR. <laughs> I'm like, why did I put my, I just put my ear up to the microphone. <laughs> like I could hear it better.
that's actually worse because then you would get the feedback that Katrina was having. It would come out of the mic, go like, or come out of your ears, go into the mic, come out of your ears, go into the mic. Yeah, but my so when I was little, my mom when we were it, like she'd be driving, and um, if she had to reverse into a spot like a parking spot or like really concentrate like if there's a tricky situation she would turn the radio off and she would like yell at us to stop talking because she would need Just silence to concentrate no to well she, so she would always say i can't see be quiet <laughs> so i feel like somehow me putting my ear to the microphone oh, to hear better that. is related <laughs> 